I'd like for you to take the Word of God, please, and turn to Luke chapter 19 and verse number 10. Uh, I'm sorry, 19, and we'll read verses 1 through 10. This is the story of Zacchaeus, um, and we're going to look at something that Jesus said in verse number 10 as a, as a place to launch from this morning. I know that we say this from time to time often, but I can't overemphasize the fact that we don't try to orchestrate uh, the services here. We don't sit down and say, okay, here's what the message is about, so we're going to sing these songs and this will be the special music. I promise you, I, I can't overemphasize that that doesn't happen. Um, and the song that was sung this morning fits so well with the illustration that I'm going to give uh, to help us understand the truth of God's Word today. It fits so well with that song that I, I felt it necessary to tell you. God has put this thing together. I want to share something else with you. I'm just going to open my heart and be a little bit transparent. Yesterday, I, I, I labored in the Word of God to know what it is that He wants you to hear, what He wants us to hear. And so, I'm always very sensitive to the leadership of the Lord, and I could not get peace about where I was going. And the Lord just impressed upon my heart um, yesterday morning, that he just wanted me to bring a simple presentation of the gospel. And and I thought, you know, knowing our church and knowing most of the people in our church and so forth, and then, and then to go one step further, God brought to my mind an illustration that I'm going to show you to explain a word in the Bible that I've used. I was a youth pastor for 13 years, so I love that age group. Uh, I was telling somebody yesterday that uh, for the 13 years I was a youth pastor, I never had not one single problem with any of the kids. Never had this one problem, never had an issue with any of the kids. Uh, we loved them. I think that they loved us. Uh, they've stayed in contact with us over the years. It's been so neat to watch these kids that we had in our youth group. They grew up, they got married, they had children. Uh, they're serving the Lord in all over, literally all over the world. And But this is something, I'm going to show you an illustration that I've showed so many kids, I can't even begin to uh, count them. But again, I'm thinking, that's for kids. That's for kids. And I showed up this morning, and we've got a room full of kids. I didn't plan that. I didn't know that. But that just, I mean, that's the God we serve. God, God knew in his omniscience who was going to be here this morning. I didn't. You know, I, I, didn't I can't remember what I had for breakfast, you know. And God knew, knew what was going to happen today. Now, you might look at this message, and you might say, well, that's so simple. Yeah, well, the gospel is in the Bible. The word of God is simple uh, in, in the right kind of way. And it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I, I always laugh when I say that because I love all the stories in the Bible. Luke chapter 19 and verse number 1 uh, is a story of Zacchaeus. The Bible tells us in chapter 19, verse number 1, and Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. He was vertically challenged, some might say. And so we, we get this picture of this man named Zacchaeus. He was a Jew who worked for the Roman government. As far as the Jews were concerned, that was the most despicable thing. In our terms today, Zacchaeus would have been one that was that belonged to the swamp. 
you know, in government. That's how the Jews looked. He, he, he was one of the swampy creatures. And the Bible says here that Jesus is coming through Jericho, and Zacchaeus sought to see Jesus, who he was. I tell you, the fame of Jesus had been spread abroad, and the things that he was doing, he was making blind people see and making the deaf people hear, and people that couldn't speak, he was uh, loosening their tongues, they could speak, and he was, he was raising the dead, he was feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, and all kinds of things were going on. And he was proclaiming a message that had never, ever been heard on this earth. We had John the Baptist who kind of alluded to that message, but boy, when Christ Jesus came on the scene, he was preaching something that was something that was so radically different from what everybody was used to, that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that he was God in the flesh. And, and, and people, the Bible says, people were astonished at his doctrine because he was preaching something so radically different. And Zacchaeus had heard this. And, uh, and he wanted to see who this Jesus was. The problem was he was vertically challenged, short in his stature, small in his stature. And little, the Bible says, in stature. And, and he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. See, all the people are gathered around the street and, and uh, there's a big to-do happening and a big crowd that's gathered and here comes Jesus and Zacchaeus is trying to see over their shoulders and over their heads. And, and so he decides... Now, you know, I'm going to run up ahead here and I'm going to climb this tree. And he goes to a sycamore tree. How many of you have ever seen the bark on a sycamore tree? It's so jagged and sharp. I think he would have been smarter to choose a different tree. But I think he wasn't paying attention to that. He wanted to see this Jesus. Who is this Jesus? I want to see what he looks like. I want to, I want to get near to him and, and see him if I possibly can. And so he runs before the verse 4 says in Luke 19. He climbs up into a sycamore tree to see him. Uh, for he, uh, he was uh, to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, and we all know the children's the song, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house. It says right here, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down quickly, come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And he, Zacchaeus had never had a reception like that before. He was a swamp preacher as far as all the other uh, Jews were concerned. And Jesus said, I want to I come visit your house today. Boy, Zacchaeus, that made him happy. He received him joyfully, verse 7. And when they saw it, they all murmured. That's everybody else. That, the, uh, that he, Jesus, was gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. Can you imagine that? Uh, that old sinner, that old wicked swamp preacher, Zacchaeus. Verse number 8, Zacchaeus stood said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. If I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Heavenly Father, I pray that you help us today to Understand the truth of what you're trying to communicate through your word. Lord, that we would practically be able to apply this to our lives. Lord, help me. Help me, Father. To communicate clearly. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Northwestern University uh, sits on the uh, shore, the banks of Lake Michigan, or really near the banks of Lake Michigan, which is uh, known, if you know anything about Lake Michigan, I grew up on Lake Michigan. 
and it's known for its cold water temperatures, and it's got uh, unbelievable undertone uh, and uh, frequent storms. They just kind of pop up out of nowhere. Uh, you know, if you if you don't like the weather, uh, if you live in Michigan, if you don't like the weather, wait a minute, because it's going to change. And that's just the way the Great Lakes are. All of them are Lake Superior, uh, Lake Michigan, uh, Lake Huron. Uh, all these lakes are the same way. But uh, this uh, Northwestern University sits on the, the near the banks of Lake Michigan. And uh, one historian es estimates actually that there are 25,000 shipwrecks on the bottom of the Great Lakes. That's, if you look at the scope of that, uh, that's, that's really a large share of the shipwrecks that are all over the world. But 25,000, yes, it's 25,000 shipwrecks. And it's just that that's the type of body of water that it is. It's very tumultuous, very, a lot of waves. Under, the undertow is, is inexplicable. As children, we would go and visit Lake Michigan. My parents would always talk about, don't get caught in the undertow, you know, and be very careful. So we were. I tell you, sometimes you'd be in ankle-deep water, and it almost take you off your feet. It's just how strong the undertow was in, in Lake Michigan. There's a student at Northwestern University. His name was Edward Spencer. And uh, he was studying in the library one day, and he heard the news. This is back in the 1860s. He heard the news uh, that uh, the Lady Elgin, had collided with another ship in Lake Michigan. Lady Elgin was a was a ferry transport. Many people it was overloaded with uh, more passengers than she was supposed to have on her. Uh, but they're going down actually to Chicago, and uh, got uh, in a collision with another ship. And the, and the Lady Elgin was sinking uh, off the shores uh, of of uh, near uh, near Northwestern University. Uh, Edward Spencer, he's in the library. He hears uh, that the ship is sinking. And he runs to the place, and he sees that the situation is very great. A storm has popped up. There's The waves are really beginning to roll. The water is cold. It's, it's in the fall. The uh, waters are icy, and, and it's getting on and getting colder. And so the water's getting colder and colder every day as it approaches winter. And uh, he sees that the people are close enough to the shore to be able to hear their cries for help, but they're too far out to be able to swim in because of the waves and the undertow. And so it's just like a fuel effort for them. They can't get in. They're floating on the pieces of the wreckage. And there they are. They're in the water. And so uh, Spencer uh, decides uh, to, he strips off his excess clothing and he dives into this cold water. And, uh, and he's, he's able to reach the first person and he grabs them. He brings them back to safety. He was a very strong swimmer. He was uh, uh, in line to be one of the great Olympic swimmers of the time. Uh, had a great potential in his future, swam out, uh, uh, grabbed uh, the first person, brought him back to the beach, and then he repeated that heroic act several more times until onlookers and his friends began to say, you've got to stop. You know, you're going to get hypothermia. You, you've done all that you can do. You're going to kill yourself if you keep going. But Spencer didn't quit. And so he went back in the water. And his reply to those that tried to, to curb his zeal was, I, look, I've got to do my best. I've got to do my best. I know it might kill me, but I've got to do my best. And so time after time, he go out there. One time he brought two people back and uh, safely to shore, and he jumped back into the water and swam out a total of 16 times. He plunged back into the water and would bring somebody else with him to the shore as he attempted another rescue. But after the 16th trip, Edward Spencer collapsed on the beach. He was just unable to go on. He cried out in anguish to those that stood around him, and they were trying to comfort him and trying to keep him warm. And he just kept repeating over and over, Have I done my best? Have I done my best? Have I done my best? And all night long, they had to keep him in the school infirmary. 
And all night long, the, uh, the, the account says that Spencer just kept repeating over and over, never slept away, but just kept repeating, have I done my best? Have I done my best? Have I done my best? I think we can say Edward Spencer gave us his last full measure. He did his best. He rescued 17 the sad thing is, is that 300 perished. 300 perished in the wreck. He saved some. But he couldn't save more. But unlike Edward Spencer, the comparison I'd like to make is, is to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Lord Jesus Christ is able to save all that come to him. All that come to him. So I'm going to tell you about the who, what, where, when, why, and how. Okay? That's easy enough to remember, right? Who? Who does Jesus save? Well, Jesus save, saves those that believe they're lost. A person has got to believe that they're lost before they can be found. Otherwise, they just keep wandering around saying, I'm not lost. I'm not lost. Honey, would you please pull over and get directions? I'm not lost. Right? And so uh, a lost person has to believe they're lost before they can they can find their way, before they can be found. And that's why Jesus said in Luke 19, 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. See, those that recognized they were lost. Those that recognized that they were in trouble. Those that recognized they, they had lost their way and they needed help. And so they have to believe that they're lost. A, a, a lost person must believe that they're drowning. A drowning person's got to believe that they're drowning before they can get saved. A few years ago, we visited Glenn and Delia at their uh, Lake Allison, Lake Chelan. And, and one of the first things my kid did was jump, kids did was jump into the water. Of course, you know the water in Lake Chelan, there's no shore, there's no slope. It's like you get in the water, it's 10 feet deep right there, right at the edge, you know. And it's cold, it's all glacial runoff. And my kids are out there playing in the water, and I'm thinking to myself, they're either going to get hypothermia or this is not going to turn out well. So I was watching them. And Amy, uh, my 18-year-old daughter, the second time in her life when I've had to save her from instant, you know, from certain death, as she is looking at me, and I'm looking at her, she's out in the water quite a distance, and she's near a dock, and a boat had come by. And that boat had created a wash that went over her head. And she kind of surprised her. Water's cold. And she's treading water, no life jacket, and water way over her head. And she looks at me and she says, Dad, help. She didn't say it loud. She just said it about that loud. I could see she mouthed the words to me. She looked at me. Her eyes were big. She said, Dad, help. Well, of course, you know the old sailor. He knows what to do. And he, uh, I dove into the water and made a valiant rescue. And, and nobody was there to cheer me on. Just my wife was more concerned about the daughter than she was about uh, congratulating her hero husband. And I brought that. See, here, here's what Amy understood. I, I'm going to drown. And Amy needed to understand that she was in trouble before she was willing to look to the Father for help. Another example, a person must see themselves as a sinner before they'll see their need for, for a Savior. You know that? A person has to see the, themselves as a sinner before they'll see their need as uh, for their need for a savior. Mark chapter two. If you'll take your Bibles and turn there, we'll come back. We'll be going around, and we might make our way back to Luke nineteen. But uh, Mark chapter two. We're going to illustrate here that a person must see themselves as a sinner before they'll see their need of a savior. Mark chapter two. The word of God tells us it came to pass. Mark chapter two, verse fifteen. It came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house. A lot of people say Jesus was homeless, but whose house was Jesus sitting in? It says his house. Many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many 
and they followed him. There's a lot of sinners that followed Jesus. Imagine that. And when the scribes and the publicans, you know those publicans, those, those swamp preachers, those people that worked for the Roman government, but they were Jews, um, they said unto his disciples, the Pharisees did, the religious uh, crowd, said, saw me with the publicans and sinners, they said unto his disciples, how is it that he eateth and drinketh with publicans and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, they that are whole have no need of the physician, they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so a sinner has to realize that they're a sinner before they can see their need for a Savior. So who does Jesus save? Jesus saves those that believe they're lost. Number two, he saves those that believe he is able to save them. He saves those that are, are, believe he's able to save them. Hebrews 7.25 tells us, Wherefore he is able, that's speaking of Christ, also to save them to the utmost that come unto him, uh, come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So we've got to believe that we're sinners, but we also have to believe that Jesus can save us. So those two things, that's who Jesus saves. Well, what? What are the lost saved from? Well, I think there's some things in, in time and there's some things in eternity that, that, the, that the lost person is saved from. A lost person in time is saved from emptiness. I don't believe that there's any way that a life without Christ is complete. I, and I say that from personal testimony. I tried it. For seven years, I tried to have a life that was without Christ. And, and uh, I had made a profession of faith as a child. And, and uh, I got to be a teenager and thought I knew everything, you know, and, and, and thought there's got to be a different way. I, I, can, I can do it my way and still be blessed and so forth. And so I got this, uh, that idea in my head. And I tried to do my things my way without Christ. And, I, you know, I found out seven years of absolute misery. Absolute misery. And everything that I was looking for outside of Christ, I found in Christ seven years later. A life, there's no way that a life without Christ is complete. It is only when people believe and receive Christ that the emptiness of life is, is filled. You know, Jesus told a story in John chapter 6. And he said this in verse number 35. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. In another place, Jesus told a woman that he met at a well in Samaria, he that drinketh of the water that I shall give him, shall never thirst. You see, with everything else, it always leaves us empty again. I mean, we can eat, and, and 20 minutes later, we're hungry again. And, and the illustration that Christ was trying to make here is that he offered this spiritual bread and this spiritual water that, that fills that emptiness. Have you ever wondered why people do the crazy things that they do? Why did they, why did they become drug addicts? Why did they become drunks? Why did they become addicts to different things? Why does that happen? Why did they pierce themselves through and make themselves look so horrific? It's because they're trying to fill an emptiness. An emptiness. And no matter what they do, that emptiness is still there. And no matter how much they try to fill it with this thing, they turn over a new leaf and then they go fill it with this thing and fill it with that thing. Some people try to fill it with religion, but it's empty. It's empty. It's empty. And it always leaves them empty again. So, uh, who does Jesus say? Well, he saves uh, those who know that they're lost and those that believe Jesus can save them. But Jesus saves them from emptiness. He saves them uh, from a life of wandering without purpose. You know, I think the greatest problem with our, in our American youth today is, and it's not their fault, it's just, really, if anything, it's the previous generation's fault. Our kids have no purpose. They don't know what their purpose in life is. And so they search and they, they keep coming up empty and they've got no purpose and finally they come to a point where they're just in despair and they, 
and they don't see the point of living anymore. And sometimes they do the horrific. We've had it happen in, in with the members of this church where one of the sons took his own life. That's oh, that's terrible. That's a terrible thing. They just had no purpose. They just were aimless in their life. Or if they don't take it out on themselves, they take it out on other kids. And that's where the, I believe that this it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue that they just have no, no purpose and people have no purpose in their lives and they wander around with no purpose. A lost person has no direction. Do you know that? Well, they're, well, they're always going in the wrong direction. That's, a, that's why they're lost, right? They just wander around in their lost condition. And Jesus comes along and he says, hey, 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 I'm the way. I'm the way. I know you're wandering around without any purpose. I know you have no direction, but I'm the way. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No man cometh unto the Father. But by me, isn't that wonderful? Christ helps a person to have to, to have a life with purpose and not just wander around aimlessly. Jesus saved them in life from the fear of death. That fear of death. For a lost person, death is a frightening darkness. Death is a scary thing. But to the saved, death is a, it's just a shadow. It's still scary. But it's just a shadow that we pass through from time and into eternity. Jesus, in John chapter 11, is quoted as saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Jesus saves them from the fear of death. Jesus saves them from the lack of inner peace. John 14, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth. Give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Boy, doesn't the world seem today like there is no peace? It doesn't seem like there's any peace. People don't have peace in their hearts. Christians don't have peace in their hearts because they've forgotten that Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. And Jesus will give a peace to somebody who's lost that they've never had before. And so he saves them from that lack of peace. And so Jesus saves them from all these things. He saves them from loneliness. This is a sad thing to consider. Do you know that people who are lost without Christ cannot say that there's somebody in their life that will never leave them nor forsake them? There's, the people who do not have Christ as their Savior are lonely. And they have nobody in their life that they can look to and say, you know what, that person will never leave me nor forsake me. They hope they do. But you know, when somebody's saved, they can honestly say that because Jesus, God's Word has told us, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And so Jesus saves them from loneliness. And all these things uh, that, that we see that Jesus saves us from in time... But more importantly, let me tell you what Jesus saves you from for eternity. He saves you from perishing. He saves you from being under the wrath of God. He saves you from condemnation. He saves you from hopelessness. He saves you from being blinded by the devil. He saves you from destruction and separation from God for eternity. That's the, To me, that's the scariest thing about dying without Christ. It's the fact that I would have to face an eternity without God. And in God's eyes, it would be as if I never even existed because he, he wipes out the names of those that have not trusted in Christ. Wipes their names out of the book of life. Not the Lamb's book of life. That's a different book. Once somebody trusts in Christ, their name is recorded in the Lamb's book of life and it never goes away. God saves us from, from that. Jesus saves us from that when we place our faith in Him. Separation from God for eternity. And all these things, are what the lost are saved from. So we said who? We said what? Now where? Where does Jesus take the lost when they're saved? 
Well, that's a good question. I would like to answer. All right. And so the first thing that Jesus takes us into is into a relationship with God. I was recently talking with a fellow. I thought he'd been saved for a number of years, and uh, and somebody mentioned in his presence that um, our faith as believers is not about religion. It's about a relationship. This man who I thought had been saved for a long time, he said, uh, he said, explain that to me. I've never heard that. What a sad thing. Listen, what we're doing here today is not about religion. It's about a relationship with God. The message I'm bringing you today is, is not for you to have religion. It's for you to have a relationship with God. You know, you look back at the story of Zacchaeus and, and those people that criticized Jesus for receiving Zacchaeus and the publicans and the sinners, that was the religious crowd. You wouldn't, you wouldn't find anybody who had it more right than they did. Their righteousness was really self-righteousness. You see, they thought that because of the things that they did, it would give them a relationship with God. And all along, they're, they're the, the means for them to have a relationship with God, standing right in front of them in the person of Christ. We're not talking about religion this morning. I'm talking to you about a relationship. And when somebody gets saved, they're brought into a relationship with God. The Bible says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things will become new. The very next verse says this, and all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. To reconcile means to be brought back into a relationship with, to be brought back into fellowship with. It includes both of those. And so when when we get saved, when Jesus saves the lost person, he brings them into a relationship with God. We can call God our Father. Can I share with you something that you hear all the time, but it's not true? Because the Bible tells us it's not true. We hear people say all the time, even in our good churches, we hear them say, we're all the children of God. No, we're not. There's two types of people in this world. Those with Christ, those are the children of God. Those about Christ, those are not the children of God. The Bible is very clear about that. We're not all the children of God. Well, God wants us all to become His children. And so when we get saved, He brings us into that relationship. God is our Father. We are His child. And faith in Christ is about a relationship, not religion. Not only that, not only that, but Jesus takes the lost into the presence of God for eternity. Into the presence of God for eternity. Now, technically, Eternity, for the person who trusts in Christ, eternity starts the day that they believe in Christ. But we understand there's a difference for us because we're bound by time. We have a relationship with God in time. We have a, a home in His presence for eternity. Some people call that heaven. Some, uh, that, that, that's the description of it. The Bible talks about that. And so Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse number 28, I give unto them eternal life. Eternal life. Eternal life. How long is eternal it's eternal, right? It's forever. And they shall, then it says, never perish. There's some people that believe that once a person places their faith in Christ, once Jesus saves them, that they can be lost again. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that a person is saved for eternity. Once they place their faith and trust in Christ, it's forever. And so uh, they'll never perish according to what Jesus said in John 10, 28. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So so where where does Jesus take the lost from their sin? Into a relationship with God and, and into a, a home in His presence for eternity, okay? So when? 
When do we get saved? Well, when we believe and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So receive or believe plus receive equals become. Okay? Easy. Easy math, right? Not the new math. God's math. Believe plus receive equals become. I believe what God said about Jesus Christ, and I receive it to be true in my heart. For with a heart, man believeth unto righteousness. I believe what God said about Jesus Christ. He's God in the flesh. And his, the work that he did on the cross of Calvary by his death, real shed blood, uh, death and resurrection, uh, is sufficient to pay the payment for my sin, for all who sin, come short of the glory of God. I recognize I'm a sinner. Because my sin, I deserve to go to hell. But Jesus came. Jesus came. He paid for my sin. And he, and he allows me to have a relationship with God. He gives me an eternal hope in heaven. And it happens the moment that I believe it, then receive it. Now, it's got to get from here to here. This is believe. This is receive. What's this? This is receive. We can believe things, but, we, but until we exercise it in our hearts... Do we own it in our hearts? That's not received. So it takes both. Believe and receive. Believe and receive. But as many as received him to that day be part become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Believe plus receive equals become. You can't just know it here, kids. You can't just have a head knowledge of, yeah, I love Jesus and Jesus died for my sins. It's not enough. You've got to own it in your heart. I can't tell you how to do that other than to say that when it happens, you'll know it. You own it in your heart. Maybe there's an adult here. When you say, how, how does that, what's that look like? I can't necessarily, I, I can't explain it to you. I can tell it happened to me. <laughs> there's other people in this room, they say it happened to me. You know, But we believe it. We knew it in our head. We acquired knowledge about God. But then we put it into practice and said, yeah, that's that's where I'm going to be with God. And we received it in our hearts. And that's when a person becomes saved. That's when a lost person is saved when they believe and receive Christ. They become a son of God. And so uh, we, we talked about those things. I'm going to skip over some things for the sake of time because I want to get to this over here. Why? Why does Jesus save the lost? This is a hard one. You ready? Because they're lost. <laughs> All right? Second uh, Corinthians 4, 3, but if our gospel be hidden, it is hidden then that are lost. So Jesus saved. This is why. He saves people because they're lost. And he saves people because it's God's will. Do you know that? God doesn't want anybody to out of a relationship with him. God doesn't want anybody to not be in his presence for eternity. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In 1 Timothy 2, 4, we see, who will have all men to be saved and come unto the knowledge of the truth. He wants everybody everywhere to be saved. That's why we have the purpose statement that we do, so that everybody everywhere will have the opportunity to hear the timeless truths of God's word, see them lived out in the lives of ordinary people, and, and respond to what they hear and see and, and, and have for themselves that relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's, that's why, because he wants the lost to be saved. How? How does Jesus save the lost? And here's, here's where we're going to kind of begin to wrap things up. How, how does a person get saved? And I hope that this will help you. If, if you've not yet trusted in Christ as your Savior, I hope this will help you. If you've trusted in Christ already, I think this will be a tool that you can use uh, to lead other peoples to that same confidence that you have in Christ. Now, what do we have up here? What's that picture of? That's a picture of a heart, right? Right. I didn't make it big because if it's too big, it's hard to do this illustration. So can everybody see my, the heart up here? Okay. Now, over here, I've marked uh, 
an X and an O. This is Valentine's Day, you know. Hugs and kisses, right? Well, in this case, an X means something bad. And an O means something good. Because some of you haven't learned this yet, but kisses are good. For the right person. Alright? Um, I throw that in there. Don't think about that when the time comes up. Um, O means what? X means now, how many of you have ever done anything bad? Who's not raising their hand? <laughs> many? No, I'm just kidding. Everybody's done something bad. So you've done bad things you like, and, and bad is represented by what? By X. So here's a person's heart. They've done something bad. They did one thing bad all their life. That's all they did. Can you imagine that? How many of you have ever, ever only done one bad thing? Raise your hand. Because I want to give you two because you're lying. <laughs> Let's say that this person, all they did all their life was one bad thing. One bad thing. All they did was break one of the Ten Commandments. This one. They didn't obey their mom and dad, the Fifth Commandment. How many ever disobeyed mom and dad? Let me ask you this. How many of you ever coveted? You wish you had something that you didn't have? They, they give out these things, they call them catalogs, they should call them covet logs. I get one from Cabela's every month. <laughs> you broke the tenth commandment. How about the ninth? Thou shalt not bear false witness. Anybody ever tell a lie? Liars. Yeah. What does it make you if you tell a lie? What if you only ever tell one lie in your whole life? What, what are you? How about the eighth commandment? Thou shalt not, is it steal? Thou shalt not steal. I mean, ever stole anything? Oh, now some of you aren't raising your hand. Jew, I saw you steal a cookie yesterday or something. Didn't he grab something? I, we, we went to our house for dinner. Yeah. Well, even he recognized it. If you steal something, what does that make you? By the way, if you, how many of you cheated on a test? You stole somebody else's answer. You're a thief. So by God's word, we begin to see this picture unfold that well, I'm a coveting, lying, stealing, thieving, <laughs> murdering. How many ever killed anybody? You know that God's words, nobody raised their hand. <laughs> Good. I've got to be, sometimes you've got to be careful because the average person only spends 13 years in jails for, uh, for murder in the United States anymore. They just sentenced a guy who killed his wife for 19 years. Premeditated murder, 19 years. That's ungodly. Do you know the Bible says that if a man hates his brother, John 3.15, 1 John 3.15, if a man hates his brother, he is a murderer. Okay, let's put it in that context. How many of you have ever thought in your heart, I hate that person? Right? We don't even have to keep going, do we? Hey, your parents, remember the Sabbath day? Mother God's before me. You know why God gave us? There's two sections of the Ten Commandments. Those that pertain to our relationship to one another and those that pertain to our relationship to God. And he gave us those commandments to prove to us we're in trouble, we're lost. But he wants to justify us. 
So let's just say, for sake of argument, that this person, the only thing that they ever do all their life is one thing, one bad thing that's represented by that X right there. And all the rest of their life, they do good things. And good things are represented by what? No. Okay. So all their life, they do all these wonderful good things all around that bad thing. Can't hardly see it because he does so many good things all over, all over these good things. I'm going to draw some bigger good things because I want to fill up the quicker. Draw so many circles. Draw a good thing. Oh, look at all these good things. All the good things that that person did. So when God looks at his heart, looks at that person's heart, what does he see? He sees good things, right? These good things. But what else does God see? See, that's why that person needs to be justified. And what justifies us is the blood of Christ. Jesus had to shed his blood. And when a person is saved, the Bible tells us that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. And I want us to begin to color a graphic here. And this represents the blood of Christ. And this person is trusted in Christ. He was lost, now he's saved. Now he's trusted in Christ. And it's the blood of Christ is cleansing him. All the sin, all the good and all the bad and all this stuff here. And I'll get out of the way so you can see it in just a minute. All this stuff is, is being just cleansed away. Just cleansed away. Here comes the blood of Christ. And this person trusted in the person of Christ. And he's God in the flesh. And this person trusted in the passion of Christ by his shed blood, his death, burial, and his resurrection. And he's believed it in his head. And he's accepted it as truth in his heart. And, and he's trusted in Christ as a Savior. He's cried out to God. said, God, I believe who Jesus is, and I believe what he did for me. And I, I believe that I need to be saved, and I believe that he can save me. So the blood of Jesus Christ comes in and cleanses from all sin. Now, what did God see before? Before I did this, what did God see? He saw all the good things and all the bad things that that person did, right? But now he's saved. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleansed from all sin. Now what does God see? He sees the blood of Christ. That's what it means to be justified. When God looks at the heart of somebody who's trusted in Christ, he doesn't see the good things or the bad things. He sees the blood of Christ. Let me go one step further. I like this part too. Now, when a person is trusted in Christ and they do something good, can God see it? No. Now, does God know they've done something good? Yes, but it doesn't matter because they're justified not by their goodness but by the blood of Christ. This is even greater. Saved person, do you know that saved people sin? Can you imagine that? I just can't imagine. I know none of you. But I got saved at nine years old. I did some bad things. But I was saved. The blood of Christ justified me. Because when I did that bad thing, could God see that? What was in the way? The blood of Christ. I'm justified. I'm justified. That's what happens when a person gets saved. That's what it means to be. That's how he does it. He justifies us by his blood. God required the shedding of blood. It was a necessity from the very beginning that Adam and Eve had to have a covering made for their sin. Blood had to be shed. And it was a picture of, of the Lamb of God that would come and take away the sins of the world by his shed blood, his death, burial, and resurrection. So we're justified by his blood. The Bible tells us we're reconciled by his death. Some of, this, some of the older folks will know this when I'm talking about it, but it says in the Bible that when, when Jesus uh, gave up the ghost on the cross, he said, it is finished. In a, in a 
uh, quite an interesting event happened in the temple. And there was a curtain that separated the, the holy place from the holy of holies. And the Bible tells us that the curtain, that was 11, uh, 11 pieces of fabric in that curtain. And 11 or 12, now I'm confused. It doesn't matter. It ripped from top to bottom. Now, if man ripped it, he would have ripped it from the bottom to the top. But it's noted that it was ripped from the top to the bottom. God opened the way. Christ opened the way for everybody to have access to the presence of God. He reconciled us to God by his death. When Jesus gave up the ghost, that veil was rent too. God gave us access to his presence through Christ. See, we're justified by his blood. We're, we're reconciled by his death. But then Romans chapter 5 tells us we're saved by his life. I'm going to have to glaze through this because we're coming upon the end of our time together. But the fact that Jesus Christ took life back means he has the power to give life because we know that he was there during creation. He also has the power to take life, but he has the power to take it back. He holds the keys to death. And so we're justified by his blood. We're reconciled by his death. And we're saved by his life. If he has the power to give himself life back after dying, then he certainly has that power to give us life. Not just life in time, but life for eternity. So that's, that's how it works. That's how Jesus saves the lost. Being justified by being reconciled, by being saved. Got to catch up to my notes here. Sorry. Here's my question. We're going to draw this to an invitation. This is coming off. You can get ready now. She's going to play a song on the piano. And this is what we call invitation time. And during this invitation time, I'm, I'm making an invitation, an appeal uh, to both those that have not yet trusted Christ the Savior and to those that have. So we're going to have two appeals that we make, and I'm going to invite you to respond. I don't know if you sensed it today, but whenever the Word of God is open, an act of God takes place. The Word of God and the, and the preacher, the Holy Spirit of God, are used together to communicate God's message to those that are in attendance. God's working. God's always working in the lives of people. He's working right in this room right now. He's working in this room right now. You can't see I didn't say anything spooky. It's just how, the, the, how God works. He works in the hearts and lives of men and women, boys and girls, and there's not somebody that's too tall. I think Keith is probably the tallest guy in here. He's not too tall for God to do a work in his heart. He's not too short for Zacchaeus, you know, for Zacchaeus to be able for God to do a work in his heart. And you, you're never too old for God to do a work in your heart. As long as you've got a pulse, you got, God's got a purpose. You, you know, you might be too young. There's children in here, little babies up in the nursery that they don't understand the difference between right and wrong. You know, we've explained that before. There's children in here. Listen, children, you're, you're never too young to respond to the moving and working of God in your life. I was four years old the first time. I remember it. I can remember it. It's in sepia tones, you know. Uh, those memories, how they fade a little bit, you know. I remember four years old, my, my sister, she's two years older than I am. She came home from church and she was so excited. She had asked Jesus to save her. More than anything else in the world, I understand this, but more than anything else in the world, she wanted her little brother to be saved. So she played with me. You gotta be saved. You gotta be saved. You're a sinner. You gotta be saved. You know? 
in a little six-year-old way, and I was a four-year-old, I'm going, no, I didn't even say God. And that was the first time I can remember, that was the first time that I ever responded to God dealing with it. I didn't get saved that day. I got saved five years later. Lord continued, listen, you're not too young for God to touch your heart this morning. And when I give this invitation, you're going to hear the piano play. We're going to invite you to come. You can respond to how God uh, touched your heart this morning, how God spoke to you. And I, I invite all of you to come. Let me ask Let me ask a question. First of all, have you been saved? Do you know for sure that if you were to die today, that heaven would be your eternal home? Do you have a relationship with God? Has there, I'm going to say it many different ways. Has there been a time in your life, you don't remember the day necessarily or the date, but you know there's been a time when you trusted, when that belief in your head, that information in your head moved your heart and you said, I'm going to make that mine. I'm going to believe Christ and I'm going to receive Christ as my only hope of having a relationship with God. I turn from everything else and I trust Christ alone. Has there been a time in your life when you've done that? You've been saved. Have you been justified? When God looks at your heart, are you sure that he sees the blood of Christ that cleanses his most? Are you justified? If not, today you can. Now here's what I'm going to invite you to do. You can come during the invitation time in just a minute, sing a song, and you'll maybe see people moving toward the front. These are called mourner's benches. Not because we're sad, but because we're happy that God's doing a work in our life. Well, I've, I've seen tears shed at this at this these benches here. We've had several people come forward and shed tears on these benches. They shed tears of joy because they found out that Christ could save them. They they saw themselves as lost. They saw their need for a savior. They come, they responded and saved. Right here, right here. I've seen people come forward and make decisions for God. Those have been saved, but they made a commitment to Christ. It's a wonderful thing that's going to take place here as we as we sing in just a moment. Have you been saved? Respond. You can come now, or I want you to get me after the service and say, I want to know more. How I can know for sure that if I die today, I'd be with God. I want to know Jesus in my heart. I want to welcome you to do that. I invite you to come either of those ways during the invitation or after the service on your shaking hands. You can come get me. I'll show you from God's word how you can be true. If you have been saved, this is going to take us back to the story of Edward Spencer. If you've been saved, what are you doing with it? I know we can't save them all. Yeah. But we can bring some to Christ. Edward Spencer's selfless act of rescuing 17 people from the foaming surf of Lake Michigan cost him his health and his future. He lived the rest of his life in a wheelchair as an invalid. Years after Spencer's daring rescue effort, there was a young man by the name of Edward Young. And he heard that story about Spencer. So he searched him out and he visited him. During the course of their conversation, Spencer retold his account. But the one thing that stood out to Edward Young was Spencer's delirious inquiry on that fateful night when he repeated over and over, have I done my best? Have I done my best? Have I done my best? And it led Edward Young to write the song that we're going to sing for our invitation, number 520. 520. Take your hymn and turn there and stand. We're going to sing, have I done my best for Jesus? I want to invite you to come and respond however God may have you.
touch your heart this morning. Lord Jesus Christ is in the business of saving the lost. He will save all that come to him. He's also enlisted the help of those who have been saved. He's also enlisted. I'm going to tell you one more little tidbit. We'll sing. During the course of Edward Spencer's conversation with the writer of this hymn, Edward Young asked him, has anybody ever come back and thanked you? Has anybody ever come back and thanked you for what you did for them? And the account tells us that Edward Spencer wrote down in tears in his wheelchair. Gave up his future. Tremendous potential in this young man. He said, not one person has ever come back. So Maybe that's the business we need to do with God today, is just come and say, thank you. Thank you for saving me. Would you join me on that first verse? Invitation to me.